Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners and that's Earshots, YT Industries and Outbound Lighting and we've got some great offers for you. I've talked about Earshots here before. They're a set of Bluetooth headphones that were specifically designed with mountain bikers in mind and they're the only headphones that I've found which stay on when I'm riding and in the gym. I love the original product but earlier this year they launched an updated version and I have to say they've really made some huge improvements. The biggest of those is in sound quality where the bass response is up by 90% which makes a massive difference in how they sound especially if you like some bass heavy music when you're riding or training. They've got more battery life with 80% more than the original product and they also fit better in your ear. In addition, the product now turns itself on and off as you take it in and out of its charging case so you don't even have to press the on off button. If you're looking for some headphones for riding, training, running or just a bit of casual podcast listening, then Earshots have got you covered. As a downtime listener, Earshots are offering you 10% off. All you need to do is to enter the code DOWNTIME22 at the checkout over on earshots.com and the discount will be applied at the final stage of the checkout process. That's downtime, all uppercase, no space, then the number 22 over at earshots.com. I've recently spent some time riding YT's latest Capra in the Core MX spec and it really impressed me. For a 170mm bike it actually climbs really well and equally it doesn't feel like a big travel bike when you point it downhill as it remains light and playful on the trails. However, when you really need it that 170mm of travel is there to help get you out of trouble. If you get a YT, I'd highly recommend trying the suspension settings that they recommend via their website, as for my weight, on this bike the setup felt great. It was super responsive with loads of grip, but still has the support that you want to keep the bike composed. As well as how it rides, YT really care about how their bikes look too, and as a result the quality of the finish is incredible, and they've even found space for an easily accessible water bottle. The Capra comes in a number of specs starting at a touch over £3,000 and at all the specs the value for money is really impressive. What's even better is that as a downtime listener YT are offering you £100 or euros or dollars depending on where you're from off of their entire range of bikes. All you need to do is to select I have a voucher at the bottom left corner in the checkout window and use the code downtime2008. That's downtime with a capital D, no space, then the number 2008 over at yt-industries.com. The code is valid for a maximum of 200 uses and runs until the 31st of March 2023. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. So hit follow or subscribe in your podcast app now, or there's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. We've got a fully refreshed and expanded range of merch available now over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. It's all really high quality, ethically sourced and delivered without any single use plastics and all the merch sales go directly to helping keep the podcast going. So head over and check it out. Christmas is getting closer and a subscription to Downtime EP is the perfect gift for the mountain biker in your life or something awesome to put on your very own Christmas list. EP takes the podcast into a printed format with writing and imagery from some of mountain biking's most talented creators. Put together by the wonderful team over at Misspent Summers, you can guarantee that EP is an incredible thing to own and read. Head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP to get yours now. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at downtimepodcast. Today's episode is also supported by Outbound Lighting and I'm joined by co-owner Tom Place to take a deep dive into night riding. Hear why Tom was so attracted to it in the first place and what he feels the benefits of night riding are. 
Tom shares some really great insight into what makes a good night riding setup. We talk about how to choose the best setup for you, what to look for, and also how to get it working in the best way possible. I learned heaps here that is going to enable me to make the most of the lights that I have, and I hope it helps you too. Tom is also giving away two of their awesome Evo downhill lighting packages, which have their bar-mounted Evo light and their helmet-mounted hangover light for the perfect combo. If you want to enter, then head to the competition post from Monday the 31st of October on my Instagram, which is at Downtime Podcast. Make sure you follow at Outbound Lighting there too, and tell us in the comments on that post why you want some new riding lights. All right, time to get stuck into this episode. So without further ado, here's Tom Place. Tom Place, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Uh, things are great. Um, happy to be here. This is pretty cool. Yeah, good stuff, man. And uh, first up, props for being potentially the most prepared guest ever. You've uh, you've got yourself a pretty nice microphone there. You've mm-hmm. uh, created some small recordings in different spots around the house, and you've decided on the the truck as the best place to record. Yeah, yeah. Thanks uh, to my buddy over at the Pisgah podcast for getting me a decent microphone so I don't sound like I'm stuck in a tunnel the whole time. <laughs> yeah, big respect there. It's uh, it's sounding good. Well, before we get into night riding specifically, be cool to get a little bit of background on yourself. First off, just tell us a little bit about how bikes and mountain biking came into your life. Sure. Um, I actually, I resisted bikes for a long time because my, my dad was a cyclist, but you know, mostly road. And so I just kind of associated bikes with Lycra and clip in pedals and, um, did not appeal to me at all until a couple of my good friends from, you know, third grade from childhood got me out on a quote unquote mountain bike ride. That was all gravel through, um, a little local park in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I was on an old stump jumper and I kind of liked it. And then eventually they convinced me to get a, um, a Surly Karate Monkey single speed setup with an 80 mil fork. And, um, yeah, that was, that was my intro into biking. And then that, that really stuck. Like that was what it was one of those sports where like, I, I did a lot of sports growing up. I played basketball, I did cross country. None of it really, it got very boring very quickly. And mountain biking was the first thing where I, I started doing it and I started getting better and I had found that I could, like I never got to a point where I was too good that I was bored. Uh-huh. Like it's really, it turns out that's really hard to do. And so it just, it kept my interest even till today. It's been, I guess it's been 12, 13 years for me now. Yeah. Awesome. And your, your email signature has the middle name danger, Tom danger place. Has that got anything to do with your writing or has that come from elsewhere? <laughs> Um, it didn't start with the writing that definitely was, uh, I spent a lot of time in the emergency room as a kid and uh-huh. through high school and in college too, actually. Um, so I, uh, it came, came from a high school name because I, I got injured a lot and then lo and behold, that trend continued with mountain biking. <laughs> yeah. Mountain bike is not the place to go if you're trying to avoid injury, I think. No. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. And what about lighting? Tell us where your love for lighting came from. Cause that was a family thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my dad's an architecture professor and he does his, his specialty research is in daylighting. And so, you know, growing up, you know, we would talk about science things and architecture and daylighting. And for the longest time, what he really wanted from industry was a, a pinpoint light source so that he could really acutely control 
exactly where that light was to be spread because pretty much everything in the commercial world is, you know, large, you know, fluorescent tubes and things. It's very hard to control where the light's going. It's just diffuse. And basically what he wanted was modern LEDs. And eventually I started playing with LEDs as kind of just science projects just for fun, um, making flashlights and toys. And then um, pretty much as soon as I started mountain biking, I'd I said, oh, well, I should make lights so we could do this at night because duh. And <laughs> uh, started making my own stuff in the garage as, as many nerds do and MTBR and things like that. And um, that's, that's what got me, got me started on it. But, you know, like as a, as a kid, I remember one of my school projects was, uh, you know, the, the, you know, you think of cool projects that kids do like the the volcanoes with baking soda and stuff like that yeah mine was um determining the energy efficiency of a compact fluorescent light bulb um, <laughs> and comparing it to other light sources so it's like did your dad help you with this well i mean yeah but i actually did the math it was it was legit um so that's that's kind of where all that started for me it was it was just always an interest and then i carried that on through into mountain biking very quickly Awesome. And what did you study alongside that then? I'm guessing engineering was the kind of path you chose. Yeah, I, I went to NC State and they got a, a very big, very good engineering program. And I kind of got a split degree uh, with uh, electrical and mechanical engineering. Um, and I got a master's in mechanical. So I'd, I actually went into electrical initially because I thought I did better on the, the placement tests in school. And it turns out I actually had my scores flipped um, and I did better in mechanical. So Halfway through, I switched <laughs> and kind of got a split degree. And now, um, you know, a lot of what I do actually is is not mechanical. It's electrical design work. So um, it's actually coming quite handy. Yeah, definitely, man. So where did the where did the career start then? Because you, you went off and got involved in kind of big industry. Yeah, I, I skipped, you know, I'll skip the, the boring jobs, but um, the first real big um corporate job engineering job was at Cree which is major LED manufacturer so pretty much every portable lighting company uses Cree LEDs and I basically once I started playing with with LEDs and, and mountain biking that's I was trying to get a job at Cree and it took me well, I think 11 months of just trying to get the right people to give my resume to the right people and um, then this hellacious interview process and finally got a job for what was technically a pay cut because they wanted, you know, 50 hours minimum and um, instead of 40. And anyways, that I uh, got into R&D on the LED chip design side. Um, and uh, eventually they realized that, OK, well, this this kid knows how to put pieces together. And so they put me in a management position in R&D and uh, package and test. And then uh, they realized, oh, he likes to play with stuff and there actually is value in that. So got moved over to our, our global applications engineering team. So we basically had this lab where, um, you know, we would do testing and metrology on uh, our, on not our fixtures, but our, on light fixtures from all of our major customers. So my job was essentially to help our biggest customers learn how to use our LEDs properly in their uh -huh. lighting designs. So companies like GE and Panasonic, They'd be making, you know, a, a new street light, and they were seeing some color separation on the ground and the beam pattern. And so I would take their their light fixture, I would test it, I would make some modifications to improve that, and send it back and say, "Hey, here's what I did. Here's what you can do to improve this uniformity and so on." And um, 
basically help them make a better product so that they can sell more and then buy more of our LEDs. And that was a really cool position because I got to see all kinds of, you know, bleeding edge stuff in um, commercial, industrial, residential lighting, um, some portable stuff, some uh, actually some strobes that were used in a uh, Beyonce Super Bowl halftime. That was pretty cool. Amazing. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really cool position and, and got me a lot of exposure to really obscure ways of using LEDs and getting the right uh, beam pattern and, and distribution of light for specific applications where, yeah. you know, like street lights, very different requirements than a can light you might have in your kitchen versus a, you know, a search light for a search and rescue team. And, um, you know, you can't have uh, one light do all of those things well. Um, yeah, so that was that was the start of my my professional career. Very cool. Uh, do do kind of bike light manufacturers that work with Cree get that level of support? Or are they just too too small in the grand scheme of things? Uh, so they didn't until I took that job, and I actually because I was so interested in bike lights, I sent emails out to uh, a lot of the major you know the major players in that market. And the only two that were interested in talking to me that needed support or, or wanted to talk to me were Glowworm out of New Zealand and mm-hmm. Exposure. Okay. Um, and I still touch base with Glowworm with Bruce over there every now and then. He's a good guy. Um, we you know talk shop and things. That um, I actually had a a separate work trip with Cree to a bunch of major companies in um, Belgium and France and Germany. It was really cool. And um, I reached out to the owner of Exposure. And I actually took a, I paid for my own flight to fly over to England, take a train down to Pulborough. And <laughs> he picked me up from the train station, gave me a tour of the facility, got me on a bike and gave me a light. And we went for the muddiest night ride I've ever, <laughs> ever been on, on the, the salt hills down there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, oh, the chalk hills, the chalk hills. Yeah. This is, that mud is a special kind of hell. Um, it's slippery. But huh? he, yeah. Yeah. We, uh. We went to a pub after and um, his family made me dinner and his, his son drove me to the airport, like unbelievably nice people. And they didn't have to do that. You know, it wasn't benefiting their company really, but it was, it was a really cool experience. Yeah. That's awesome. So was your first uh, kind of night riding experience with a, a shop bought light or with something that you'd knocked up at home? Oh, definitely a homebrew garage yeah. built project. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I had, um, there's there's a lot of common pieces that that get used for off the shelf optics and um, batteries and such and uh, for, you know for these kind of homebrew projects for people on MTBR they they hack up their own stuff and I started with the same thing um, and make modifications to them with little diffusive films over part of the optic to spread the light a little bit differently and um, you know tune and tweak it as I go and eventually I started machining my own housings just you know by hand they were not pretty they were just meant to be functional um and eventually i think in the first first year i was night riding i made uh, i did this 24-hour race um called a burn out in north carolina and i wanted to make sure that i showed up with at least four times as much light as anyone else could commercially <laughs> buy um so i i made a 10,000 lumen uh handlebar light and realized it's at a certain point, it's really pointless to have that much light, especially in a, a tight spot. So I actually machined it so some of the optics were pointing off to the side at an angle because I needed to spread it out. And um, 
that's when I started playing a lot more with, you know, with higher output lights, but with optics as well. And, um, and then I started buying, uh, you know, uh, what's commercially available and tearing them apart and, and playing with those. And, um, there's a lot of learning to be done there. Definitely, man. So was night riding like a love for you from the get go, or was it something that was kind of essential because you wanted to play with lights and that was the way you go and test them? Does that make sense? Oh, it was, it was absolutely a love. Like it was, it was fun from the start because I, once I got hooked on mountain biking, anything mountain biking was the thing to do. And the fact that I could do that and nerd out over lights and uh, testing a bunch of different things every time I went out and rode, that was, yeah, perfect combination. So um, it was kind of two birds scenario. Yeah. What, what would you kind of list out as the benefits of night riding then? Cause there's still a lot of people, I guess, that, that haven't gone out and given it a go and it's a pretty unique and special experience oh sure and and i think that's that's a big part of it too is you know there's there's necessity and then there's a desire for something different you know certain areas of the country like i'm in olympia washington right now and you know a couple months it's gonna get dark at 4 p.m and if you don't ride at night then you don't ride um but we have all your uh riding weather that we can enjoy here so you really have to ride at night most of the year um and that's different from just wanting something to mix it up because a lot of times, you know, if you don't travel, you know, if you don't have the privilege to travel a lot to, to ride different exotic places, you ride a lot of the same trails over and over again. And you know, sometimes you get bored with that, especially if you're not riding with big groups to make it interesting, you know, um, friends pulling you along going at night really makes your local trails feel different. And it gives you a different perspective that I, I find is, very helpful, not only in helping you improve as a rider, because you see things differently, you might take lines differently, or, you know, you might read a certain section of trail at night because of the way the light's hitting the trail in a way that you never would have considered during the day. And then you try something different during the day as a result. So I think, you know, for some people, it's, it's more about that, just mixing it up. And, and some it's because they have to, but I think both are valid reasons. And it's a good way to kind of, um, to mix things up keep you on your toes yeah and a lot of people i guess uh would say that riding a trail at night makes the trail harder do you think that's always the case because i guess one thing that night riding has got going for it is that the lighting you're providing is at least consistent whereas daylight is constantly varying yeah that's i mean that's kind of exactly it in my mind you know and if you ride at, at peak sunlight you know sun's 12 o'clock dead up in the sky versus at you know dusk where the sun's coming in at a shallow angle through the trees you're getting kind of the strobe effect in your eyes uh the way the light's hitting the trail makes the trail look very different if you have shadows or not um and really the only thing that's that makes it easier during the day is that there's just a lot more light but at night yeah you're, you're exactly right it's very consistent because the light is always mounted on your helmet and your bars and that doesn't change. So no matter what section of trail you're on, the light's hitting it the same way every time you go out and night ride. So I think that that helps actually a little bit with consistency once you get used to the way the light's hitting it, because it is very uh -huh. different from during the day. It does take some getting used to for people, but it is it is more consistent. And I think that when people say it's harder at night, most of the time, that's because they don't ride at night very often. And, and it is different. So they got to get used to that. Yeah. Do you think night riding can help improve your riding in certain ways then? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because 
because you're looking at trails differently, you're, you're seeing things differently. And, you know, sometimes that's, if you've got a crappy light setup, you can't see it very well. So you're having to react very late, um, rather than planning ahead for certain things. Um, and, uh, sometimes it's because you can't see something and then you're in it all of a sudden. But I think if you have the right setup, then it's, it's really not about, you know, not being able to see as well or things being scarier because you see less. It's more about the way you're reading the terrain as you're riding. And, um, you know, there's plenty of times where I'll watch somebody else ride during day at night and they'll take a line that I never realized was physically possible or just never occurred to me. Like I just never saw it. And I think that happens a lot at night where, you're riding your main line and something jumps out at you because, you know, you've got a handlebar light casting shadows out and like, oh, that rock looks like a kicker. Maybe I can, you know, turn that into a little hip on the side of the trail. And, um, yeah, you might not see that otherwise. Yeah. And I think it, it can help direct your vision to some extent as well. If you're a rider like me that gets kind of their vision sucked down towards their front wheel quite often, riding at night actually sort of for me, I find forces me to try and look up, look further down the trail. And again, depending on how you set your lights up to some extent as well, I suppose. But Yeah, and, and that's something that I think a lot of people don't think about with their setups until somebody kind of pokes at them like, hey, why do you have your helmet light pointed so low? Um, you know, and that that's something common I see. We talk a lot about if you want to go fast, you got to look down the trail. Don't look right down in front of you like you're talking. Um, if you have your helmet light set up, incorrectly then in order to keep the light down the trail if you have to stick your head way up in the air then it's an unnatural riding position you ride worse you ride unbalanced and you're so focused on keeping the light where it is that you're not seeing you're not paying attention to the rest of the ride or the terrain so that's where i think setup is key so if you get it everything set up on your bike and your helmet so that in your natural riding position, you don't have to do all these weird contortions to be able to mm -hmm. see the parts of the trail you want. Then you can just sit there and focus on what's being lit up. And, um, you know, I think there's, you know, what people commonly refer to that as, as tunnel vision. I kind of don't like that, that phrase because I hear tunnel vision. I think you're focused on one thing. It's kind of like target fixation. Don't look at the tree or you're going to hit the tree. Right. Um, <laughs> And tunnel vision, I think, is when you have lights that are really narrow beam. So you're just lighting up a single spot. That's all you can see, which is great for super high speed, like straight runs. Um, but most normal trails, especially local trails you're riding at night, are not 40 miles per hour in a straight line. And if you get offline just a little bit with a really narrow spot, now you've got tunnel vision off the trail somewhere and finding your line back on the trail becomes immensely more difficult. Um, so it, in that way, you know, depending on your setup, it does kind of force you to be more, um, consistent with your riding yeah. because if yeah. you, you can't recover from mistakes as easily, but if you have the right setup, then that, you know, it's less of an issue. Definitely. So I guess being willing to tweak your setup over the first couple of rides that you do with it just to try and get everything like you say so that you feel comfortable and you're not hunting around with your head or the bars trying to find what you want to be seeing yeah it's you know just like setting up your suspension right it's it's I mean it's not exactly the same but you you don't take your bike out and then ride it the first time without testing anything without adjusting your seat height without um adjusting your your roll of your bars or your um brake lever position you, you mess with that to get it to feel comfortable and you kind of do the same thing with lights too to make sure that 
you're comfortable riding with them. Yeah, for sure. So you've got your kind of background with Cree. You obviously still tinkering a huge amount with bikes and loving the night ride inside of things. How do you decide to make that move away from this, uh, you know, big kind of successful career with Cree and move towards the bike industry by joining industry nine? Sure. My, I had a bunch of buddies out in Asheville, North Carolina. And, um, uh, one in particular was, you know, they, they, at industry nine, they've got, uh, a really intense Tuesday night ride that is, um, you know, the owner of the company, Clint, it's, it's a big passion for him. Um, and he, he just loves, you know, getting out in the complete darkness away from everything else and no lights, no sound with his buddies and just being out in the dark like that. And then ripping a few thousand feet of descents. Um, <laughs> And, you know, they'll be out there riding until midnight, one in the morning, but you know, eight o'clock you're at work the next day, ready to go. And, um, they, you know, Clint has always wanted to make his own lights and he was, you know, they were machining some housings for another company, um, for a little bit. And, uh, uh, Chris sent me a message. It was like, Hey, would you consider helping us make some lights? And that kind of, we just had some loose discussions and it got to the point where like, Oh, they're serious. They want to actually make this stuff. And I kind of thought, you know, if I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I should do it before I'm 50. Um, while I still have a chance to, uh, fail and then get back into a career and, and, um, you know, retire at some point. But, uh, I, I just took the chance. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get a better opportunity than to go to an established company who makes high quality products in an area of the country where I love the riding in Pisgah, um, and, and do something that involves all of my passions and, and capabilities. So I just thought to hell with it, let's, let's give it a shot. And, um, that actually didn't work out <laughs> for, for a lot of different reasons. And, and honestly, a big part of that was, uh, you know, we, we were trying to do too much at like a feature creep is, uh-huh. is a term I use. We were trying to make the ultimate of everything that had every feature known to man. And, um, you know, after six months or so, we, I think our approaches just weren't aligning and didn't look like it was going to work. So we parted ways and, um, I kind of went on looking for other opportunities to still make lights, um, and did some consulting work and did engineering management work for a little bit um until i found uh outbound and i found matt online and matt had started this company uh doing something novel bringing automotive lighting design into the bike light space and so i just sent him a message and just like hey i think that what you're doing is awesome but i can help you with the industrial side you know what what riders actually need making it more bike friendly and biker centric and we could make something awesome together. And I said that in like a novel of an email <laughs> and he responded with an equally long detailed email and we just started working together and it's worked very well since then. That's interesting. And I mean, we're going to no doubt end up talking about the outbound view on things. Cause you guys do certain things differently, um, from other parts of the industry. Um, but I know you're super keen to kind of help people understand bike lights, irrespective of where they end up buying them from and enable them to make the best decisions for their needs. So with that in mind, where would you start if you're, if you're thinking about getting into night riding, you want to dip your toe in the water. What, what's the first thing you want to consider? Yeah, I, I think first of all, if you've never gone night riding, 
go borrow a friend's lights and just do it. It doesn't matter what they are. Just go do it and know that it might not be the perfect setup. It may not be the best experience that first time. And that's fine. Just remember the first time you rode a bike, probably not perfect. Um, and, and just go see what it's like, because it is very different. And if you go into it, the right attitude that it's super freaking fun. Um, and then you'll realize very quickly that if you want to enjoy that much like mountain biking, you kind of graduate from the $300 Walmart bike very quickly when you realize, oh yeah, suspension matters. The leverage curve matters. Proper tires and wheels matter. Um, having good brakes for longer downhills, that matters. Um, so once you get to that point, then you start looking at, at higher end equipment and you know both a handlebar and a helmet light and uh, really dialing in uh, what you need for the types of trails you're going to be riding, um, you know, if they're tight and twisty, if they're wide open, if they're rocky or smooth, and all of that kind of plays into the quote unquote ideal setup for you, um, which is different for everybody. It's why there's options. Um, but I, I'd say the the first thing to start with is just getting out there and trying it. And then once you get into buying your own light set, I I highly recommend both helmet and handlebar for uh-huh. a bunch of different reasons. Um, but there's some areas like, you know, uh, out in the desert, there's not a lot of trees. Uh, it's pretty wide open and it's generally pretty rocky. That's an area where because you don't, even if you have tight switchbacks, because you don't have trees blocking the corners and because it's rocky, you can get away with just a handlebar light and actually be better off because you can read really rocky, chunky terrain better. Um, whereas in the Pacific Northwest, there's trees everywhere covering the terrain and you've got a lot of overgrowth a lot of the year. So if you just have a handlebar light, it's going to be really hard to see around corners and, and down steeper stuff. So maybe a helmet light is more critical to you, especially if your trails are, you know, pretty bermed and smooth uh, where they're building up features. So you don't have to read really chunky three-dimensional features. You just have to read the direction of the trail. So, um, there's, there's definitely exceptions to the, the always have both rule, but I always recommend having both because it gives you the ability to, one, have a backup, um, to kind of tune which one you use more or less at different levels for the types of terrain that you're riding. Um, and uh, it's a lot more more flexible experience. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about, I guess, the sort of the positives and the negatives of those two lighting positions? Because there's the whole kind of angle of incidence with the ground and the shadowing effect. There's a lot that goes into, you know, why you might choose one or the other and why a balance of two is often the best. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what I hear a lot from people, um, you know, and, and this happens all the time in the bike industry, people get one component, one setup, and they'll say, I love this thing. It's the best thing ever. And they've literally never tried anything else. Um, <laughs> and that's cool, but it's not always true. And, and that happens a lot with helmet lights where people get a single helmet light and they say, oh, I love this setup. It's perfect for me. But it's because they'd never tried having both or just running the handlebar or they've had a handlebar light that was terrible. And then they got a decent helmet light. And lo and behold, that was better. Um, I think that uh, So the main difference between handlebar and helmet is physically where the light is mounted. On the bars, it's below your eye line, and on the helmet, it's above. And, you know, beam pattern and brand aside, a helmet light is always above your eye line, which means you have zero depth from the trail. And, And what I mean by that is because it's above your eyes, it's 
you know, when it hits a rock on the trail in front of you, it's casting a shadow behind that rock. But because your eyes are below the light, you can't see the shadow. So what happens is the light kind of blends the rock and the ground behind it. So you can't tell if that rock is sticking up out of the ground or if it's flush with the dirt. And you might ride that. You may you may read it at speed very differently. Whereas a handlebar light, because it's lower down, it casts shadows out that you're now looking down into. So on a, you know, you take the same section of terrain, and this is a good thing for you to test at home too. If you've got a, you know, particularly chunky section uh, or lots of roots and stuff, take your, your light, whatever it is, hold it down at your bars or at your waist, see what it looks like, and then move that same light above your head. And what you'll notice is that because of the shadows, everything looks really three-dimensional. And, and a lot of times it can make the trails look chunkier than they are um, because of that effect. But on the helmet, everything looks flat. And this is where I think the balance of those two is really important because if you've got really smooth buff trails, maybe you don't need to be able to see uh, the depth as much. So you can get away with just a helmet light because you're not having to, you know, weight the bike differently to get over a rock or not get hung up on this route. Um, But I think for most trails and for the average trail riding experience, there's a mix of everything, right? There's some smooth sections, some rough sections. And I think a handlebar light is really important for that so that you can accurately read the terrain at speed. Because keep in mind, you know, you're riding it maybe 20 miles an hour on some of these downhills and fast sections. So everything's coming at you very quickly. And to be able to see something down around your front wheel and know that you need to put the bike forward. So when it catches your rear wheel, it doesn't toss you um, while you're still looking down the trail. Like we talked about earlier, you got to be able to see your periphery a little bit better and you have to be able to see it accurately. And that's where a handlebar light um, really helps with that a lot. Um, but, isn't always great if you have a really narrow beam handlebar light. So just in terms of where you're mounting it, that's that's the biggest difference. The helmet light gives you zero depth, but lets you see wherever you're looking. The bar light gives you the most depth, but because your bars are never quite pointed where you're looking, you kind of need a different beam pattern and different setup for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes complete sense. And it's something I hadn't really thought about, but when you start digging into it and moving a light around, like you said, and doing that test it does does have quite a huge impact on how you see things let's touch on beam pattern then because you've mentioned it kind of as a sidebar but it really does make a huge difference and there's obviously reasons why you also might want i guess a different beam pattern from the helmet light to the bar light as well uh, absolutely and and that's the, the biggest difference again between those two mounting applications is that the helmet's always pointed where you're looking unless you're riding really funny and looking out the side of your, anyways, it's always pointed where you're looking. So you can get away with a narrower beam on your helmet because um, you're controlling it. Your handlebars, you may be coming into a corner and counter steering a little bit. So now your bars are pointing away from the corner that you want to go into. So if you have a narrow beam on your handlebars, you're going to very easily lose the trail very quickly because that beam is going to move off the trail and then you can't see what's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having having a much wider beam pattern um, side to side on the bars is, I think, really critical to make make the most of that light because a narrow beam works fine, again, if you're mobbing every trail straight line at 30 miles an hour. But if you're, you know, normal trails are 
average speeds and tight and twisty then and especially on like slow climbs too your bars move around a lot more than you realize and you're not you you want the bars to be pointed where they need to go not where you need to look um so that's that's why having that wide pattern is is critical there but i think for both having peripheral vision is is more important than than people realize so a lot of bike lights to this point have historically been flashlights with mounts for bars and helmets um so they're a round spot in the center of your beam and they have a larger circle of spill light that's a little bit dimmer and then everything outside of that is just dark um which is you know kind of like that tunnel vision um uh, concept we talked about earlier you see only what that light lights up and if you don't have peripheral scatter you can't see anything outside of you unless you turn specifically to look at it mm-hmm. and you don't want to be doing that at speed. You want to just be able to see that and not have to to actively try to see, oh, is that a branch sticking out um, or am I clear? Um, and so having having a little more peripheral scatter is important because also during the daytime, guess what? You can see all of that. You're not just able to see the trail in front of you. You're able to see everything in your surroundings. And that helps a lot with balance too. You know, um, if you're if you're single folk singularly focused on one object out in front of you, um, but you can't see the rest of what's around you that that can make you dizzy. It can make you not realize, you know, how you're leaning or, or where your body position is. And if you can see the entire field of view in front of you, that just becomes a lot easier. So having a balance between all those things is important and, you know, where you mount it kind of plays directly into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are there are a lot of lights, like you say. I guess that they have quite a wide spread, but the uh, the amount of light tailors off pretty quickly as you move away from the center of the pattern, right? Yeah, and and for some people and certain types of riding, that works great. Um, but I I've found in general, what most people need is not narrower, more intense beams. They need a more even spread. Um, mm-hmm. the, the other thing is your eye will automatically adjust to the brightest thing in its field of view. So if you have all the light in a really bright spot, your eye will, your pupil will constrict to let less light in. If mm-hmm. you spread it out more evenly, then your pupil will dilate. It lets more light in and makes everything feel brighter uh, because you're letting more photons um, through your iris. And if you, in the beam pattern is directly correlated to that, right? If you, if you put all that, all those lumens into one really bright spot, your eye is going to adjust to that. And you may not be able to see as well, even if you have more power all focused in that one area. Um, so spreading it out helps with that. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Talk a bit about light color. Cause you've got that whole kind of spectrum from like blue bright light down to like warm orangey kind of light. And I think that has an impact to some extent on how we see definition. Is that right? So, so definition isn't exactly the right word. Um, it, it helps you, it helps you tell the difference between different objects. And that comes a lot down to color rendering. Um, Uh and that is also separate from color temperature. So you can have cool light and warm light that has similar color rendering index, which means that you look at something that's blue and red and you can tell the difference between the two colors. You can tell that's actually red and that's actually blue or more better example on the trail. You can see a green leaf next to a brown stick uh, next to a gray rock and tell the difference in color of all those things. Um, 
a lot of you know LEDs historically started with very low color rendering index uh, because they're just trying to make them as efficient and bright as possible. We're we've been to the point for a while now where we can make really high quality light sources from LEDs that have high CRI and regardless of the color temperature. But that's not what happens. A lot of you know portable lighting has historically been very cool white, so very blue spectrum. Mm-hmm. And um, that the way that impacts your eyes more than anything is, is not so much definition, but it affects your pupillary response. So um, your eye is more sensitive to shorter wavelengths of light that are higher energy. Sorry, this is a lot more detail than you probably need. But, no, this is um, good. Short wavelength light, which is blue, like getting to the ultraviolet range, will cause your eye and your pupil to constrict. Um, the longer wavelengths, like red, will will not cause as a severe of a pupillary response. So what essentially that means is more blue light in the spectrum, the more your pupils constrict, which lets more or less lets less light into your eye, which makes everything seem dimmer. Mm-hmm. So in this way, warmer white lights can make everything feel a little bit brighter because it's less stress on your eye. Your eyes are less strained. Um, but warm white LEDs are also less efficient because they've got to convert to a much broader spectrum into warmer colors where the phosphors are less efficient. Anyways, um, the the point is cool white is is good because it's very it's bright and vibrant and you can get very crisp definition from it if you have high color rendering index but um having something a little more neutral like automotive lighting is pretty much settled on um 5000 to 5700 kelvin um as a neutral white source it's still blueish but it doesn't have this massive blue spike um if you have yellowish lights what happens is even if your color rendering is good everything looks monochromatic it kind of looks and feels like it's yellow yeah and it's it's not always a bad thing but it's weird because it's not the way you see during the day uh uh-huh. so the the cooler or more neutral light tends to emulate sunlight a little bit better which is more natural feeling yeah and are these the sorts of things that you'll see in a like a manufacturer's specification for a bike light like color rendering index or warmth of light or that is that kind of stuff that only comes out when you actually go and use the product and experience the The, effect they are listed for most um but generally speaking you're not going to find anything other than 6500 kelvin and 70 cri and those numbers may not mean anything to you but that essentially means a cool white with a average cri Um, there are some smaller manufacturers that offer a neutral white tint as an option that's usually 4,000 or 5,000 Kelvin and maybe 80 CRI, but not always. Um, and then there's some very small, you know, boutique people making bespoke hand-built lights that offer like 93 CRI, uh, 3,000 Kelvin, whatever. Weird options that are good if you're the type of person who wants exactly that one thing. But uh-huh. really, for for the most part, every light on the market is going to be cool white and low CRI. Okay. And that's sort of set in a position where it's the best of the trade-offs i guess because you're trading off other things for that i assume cost or whatever happens to be well i mean i don't think so but i'm you know obviously i'm making decisions for our company and uh i'm tend i'm following the automotive industry and right now uh-huh. the automotive industry has a lot more research behind um human eye response and how that affects oncoming drivers and things like that and that may not correlate directly to the trail but 
they're settling on 5,700 Kelvin and 80 CRI because higher CRI uh, causes more uh, color non-uniformity. And basically, if you pick up a bike light and, or a flashlight or whatever, and you see like a, a bright yellow spot in the center and then a blue halo around it, that's called color separation. And that happens because of the architecture of the LED and trying to focus all the light into a, a narrow beam pattern. And with higher CRI lights, it's harder to do that really uniformly. So you end up with more color separation and automotive industry will not tolerate that. It has to be extremely uniform. So I'm, I'm kind of following their, their lead on that for something that's a middle ground. It's not warm. It's not cool. It's neutral, even uniform, because that seems to help people with uh, night vision the best. Got you. Okay. Interesting. And I, I think those are numbers that probably a lot of people won't necessarily have dug into before. The number that people do always seem to quote with lights is lumens, mm -hmm. um, which my understanding is that can vary depending on how it's measured to some extent, but also is potentially not the best guide for people. Give us some thoughts on, on how to use or why to avoid lumens as a metric. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be avoided. It does have value, but it's kind of like shopping for bikes solely by looking at how much suspension travel it has. More is not always better. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of nuances in suspension design. Maybe it's a DW link that has good anti-squats. So you get good pedaling performance. Maybe it's uh, something that's focused on reducing brake jacks. You have really active suspension under braking. It's going to be better for downhills. Um, and Lumen's is a single number and it doesn't tell you any of these other facets of the, of the beam pattern, the color, the anything about the light performance. So uh, other than total output. So it's, it's important, but only a little bit. Um, and that's where it's, it's really hard to, to break that down into multiple metrics that mean something to people when they're shopping around. And honestly, looking at, you know, beam shots helps, but really the, the proof is, taking something out on the trail and seeing it with your own eyes because it's kind of like riding a bike too you may think oh this suspension platform is going to be ideal for the way i ride on these trails and then you get out on it and it just doesn't quite agree with you because it doesn't feel right um and bike lights can be a lot the same way um you, you get out and you try it and you find oh this doesn't quite it feels funny to me either i feel like i'm too laser focused or i can't see far enough ahead or or what have you so lumens is essentially just telling you the total amount of light, total number of photons coming out of the front of that light, no matter where they're going. So you can have like a laser, for example, that's focused on one single point and it may be super bright, tons of lumens, but you can't see crap because it's all <laughs> focused on this really tiny spot. On the same token, if you just took like a regular light bulb from your house, it's 800 lumens and you take it out on the trail, you can't see more than a few feet in front of you because the light's scattered in all directions very evenly. There's no intensity whatsoever. So um, lumens help you as a guide, like which lights are more and less powerful and generally how they'll feel. But if if you're looking for a light that goes on your handlebar, for example, yeah, maybe you want more light, but you really want that beam to be very wide because if it's all, you know, you've got 4,000 lumens focused in one spot, the moment you turn your bars just a little bit, you're going to lose the trail. And because that spot is so intense, now everything else is going to look darker because you're, you're adjusting to the intensity of that spot. Um, and, and so, yeah, lumens are, are important, but they are not the end all be all 
metric. They're just the only number that the bike industry has had for lights for decades. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, hard to put a number to a beam pan. On that note then, do, do many brands do demo for lights? Because that's, I guess, the dream, right? Is to go out and try these things. Yeah, not a lot. And I think that's because there's not a lot of opportunity. Um, it's kind of hard to... Um, put together nighttime events that people want to show up to, you know, people, especially if they're, they're traveling to a location to, you know, to go like Sedona mountain bike festival, um, great bike fest for demoing bikes. Well, people go out and ride during the day. And by the end of the day, they're tired and they don't want to ride at night. They want to go eat dinner and party with their friends. Um, but we do a demo ride every year when we're out there, um, on Friday night, because, you know, we get a decent crowd of people that go there, they want to test lights and they don't have an opportunity to otherwise. Um, it's also hard for us to, you know, or for any company, uh, in the bike and in, bike light industry to do that because, you know, bike lights are, uh, kind of a, a niche, right? Not everybody has to night ride. Not everybody wants to. Um, and it's hard to, you know, justify hiring a demo driver to drive around the country and just set up opportunities for people. But, um, what I'm seeing more of is local shops, you know, your, your local bike shop may have a weekly night ride and they may have some lights that they sell that they're willing to, to lend out to people to try. Um, that's, that's usually the most, um, most effective way to go test something out in the field. Yeah. Good recommendation. Let's talk about batteries then. And there's that, that choice, I guess, between internal within the light, which means you've got a heavier light and probably a limited range, well, inevitably a limited range. Every battery is some limit on it. And then you've got external batteries, which tend to be bigger, heavier, either strapped to yourself or the bike, but but come with, yeah, I guess, longer range. Is this purely down to like how long you're going to be out on your night rides for, do you think? Uh, it depends on how the lights you have are constructed. You know, some lights, like, you know, for example, ours have pass-through charging where it's internal, it's an internal battery in the light, but you can extend the runtime by essentially charging them while you're riding and still have, you know, high output modes available to you. Most lights are going to be one or the other. So it, it, I would say that a lot of the time that comes down to the type of rides you're going to be doing. And most people, you know, like we just talked about, they're not traveling to exotic locations to go ride there at night, you know, if you want to see Sedona during the day for the beautiful views, not at night when you can't see anything. Um, so a lot of times you're riding your local trails. Maybe that's an after work ride where you're just trying to get an hour or two lap in. Maybe you're the type of weirdo that likes to do 24 hour races and you're out there for 12 hours at a time. Uh, maybe you're doing bike packing where you need longer amount of light, but less light output because you're not hitting 40 miles an hour on a downhill. Um, and, you know, horses for courses, right? For some people, an external battery pack light makes the most sense. But for the majority of customers, I would say that, you know, regardless of brand, self-contained lights are getting really good. And battery technology is pretty mature at this point. You can get the runtime and output you need from a self-contained light um, without resorting to a big heavy battery pack or being tethered between your helmet and your pack or, or what have you. Um, so I'd say most people should be looking at self-contained lights first and then um you know look at other options depending on their use case okay um we've talked a lot about you know the ideal combo of having a helmet and a bar mounted light is there an element of the two products kind of ideally being designed to work together like if you're going out and picking and choosing is it better to get 
the both lights from the same brand that have been designed to work together or is it kind of okay to pick and choose maybe a, a helmet light from one brand and a bar light from another as an example how important is the pairing it it can be really important i would say that you know like anything else if if two products are designed from the start to work together specifically yeah they're probably going to work pretty well um it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that but um what what you'll also find just looking at bike lights out there is a lot of them aren't designed for the bar or the helmet they're just a bike light that you could mount wherever and what i'd say in, in general for those is there it's kind of the the jack of all trades master of none if you design something to be used everywhere it's going to be not really good at any one thing um so getting a bar light that's designed specifically for mounting on the bars with a wide beam pattern and with a wide beam pattern comes more intensity so brighter output on the bars that's that's important. If you can find that, that's what I'd look for. And then um, the helmet light is a little bit easier because most bike lights are decent helmet lights to start because they're narrower beams. Um, but that doesn't mean that all you need is a narrow beam and it's going to be perfect. Um, there's definitely variances. Um, you know, some manufacturers give you the ability to kind of tune the optics a little bit to swap out the optics for a narrower or wide or what have you. Um, and some don't. Um, but some are also off the shelf stuff that you could find for a flashlight. Um, and some are custom designed for that specific application to give you a, you know, punch down the trail, but then a gentle fall off to your periphery. So you have smooth, even lighting rather than a spot and then a circle around it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd, in general, yeah, find two that are designed to work together and, and get that because that's going to work the best, but uh -huh. there's no harm in mixing brands. Yeah. And I guess matching the output, because most of them have like some level of control over the output. And from what you were saying earlier, if your helmet lights creating a super bright spot in the middle of your bar light kind of widespread beam, mm -hmm. it's going to make your bar light feel less effective. Is that right? Because you're, you're going to like your pupils are going to shrink. Yeah. Yeah, that and it'll wash out some of the definition you're getting from from the bar light. So if you're if you're using your bar light and you're getting really good definition on a rocky trail, you can tell those rocks are sticking out of the ground and then you shine your high intensity narrow beam helmet light directly on those rocks in front of you. Those shadows are going to disappear and now it's going to look flat again. So that's that's where having the setup is important, too. You don't want your helmet light pointed down at your front wheel. You want it pointed down the trail. Um and your handlebar light kind of fills in the foreground and everything else. So you get that definition to make the trail easy to read, but you're also seeing your run out at high speed. You're able to see around corners. Um, and, you know, depending on the, it, again, it all depends on the type of writing you do and, and your preference. I'd say for 90% of customers, the kind of ideal setup is to have a, a handlebar light that is about twice as bright as your helmet light because you want the field of view to be very evenly lit. And if you're focusing that light in a smaller area with a narrower beam, you need less light to do that. So you can get away with less light on the helmet, which is also better from an optimization standpoint because you don't need as much battery because you're not running as much power, which means you can have a smaller and lighter weight light and and still get decent runtime from a smaller battery. So that's that's important when you're looking at a helmet light too, because it's mounted on your neck. You know, if you're riding for two, three hours at night and you've got something heavy on your helmet, you're going to feel it at some point. Uh, whereas on your bike, you may notice the extra weight on your bike. I doubt it, but you might. 
it's not going to wear on your body the same way a helmet light will. So that's why I, you know, for some people that their trails are basically straight line mobbing world cup downhills. Great. A more powerful helmet light makes sense for that. Um, but in general, I'd say you don't have to have, uh, 8,000 lumens on your helmet to be able to see really well. Yeah. Got you. Okay. What are your thoughts on like, I don't know what you call them, smart lights or automation. There's some some lights out there now that will like try and work out how fast you're going or what kind of gradient you're on, and they'll adjust the intensity of the light based on that. Any thoughts? Yeah, it, they're not ready yet. Um, I'll just say that up front. It's, it's a good principle, but um, I've actually played with this a lot on like homebrew lights, you know, connecting uh-huh. them to like ant plus like wheel speed sensor. So you get really accurate wheel speed. And this, this kind of comes down to the same issue with like AI right now. It never perfectly decides what you want in your head. <laughs> and, you know, my local trail, I may average six miles an hour and be 15 on the downhills and three on the climbs. And so my threshold for where that light needs to kick up output needs to be around, you know, maybe eight miles an hour. I start going down, I start picking up speed. I want the output to go up high. There may be some people where their entire ride, they're averaging 12 miles an hour because it's a pedally cross country loop and their threshold needs to be completely different. So having the speed sensitivity, it's a good idea, but it has to be tuned for exactly the types of trails you're riding and the way you ride. And everybody is so different in that regard. It's hard to make a single product that that intuitively knows what your brain is thinking at all times. So I I think it's cool for maybe more for road applications where um, you're more, you know, more more consistent with your speed changes. But on a mountain bike in particular, you know, you're coming up like slow up to a steep shoot drop in. You need the light before you drop into that steep shoot, right? You don't want it for, to wait for a few seconds. Oh, now you're at 20 miles an hour. guess I better turn it up. And, um, it just, you know, I don't think anything really does it really well right now. Okay. Maybe in the future, but yeah, not, not at this point in time. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about outbound light specifically. So I've, I've had a set for a year and I've been really impressed and there's some, some nice features on there that I think are worth mentioning. The first one, which I think a lot of people that night ride regularly would appreciate is quick charging. Um, it's always that like, Oh no, I'm going night riding in half an hour. And I forgot to charge my lights from last week. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about quick charging. Cause it comes, comes at a cost, right? But it feels like it's a really good feature. Yeah. And it, just like electric vehicles, right? You kind of have to have quick charging in order to make electric vehicles work. Uh, it's, it's less critical for lights, but we also think, you know, technology is there. You might as well use it. Um, and particularly for internal battery lights, you know, self-contained lights where you have to plug them in to recharge them. You can't just swap the battery out. You, you want them to charge as quickly as possible. And so what we try to do is make it so that you can charge at a high enough speed that you can extend your runtime, um, pretty significantly on a longer ride. So if you're going out for a two hour ride, you don't need anything. You just take the light and go, you're going out for a four or five hour ride and you need high output the entire time, then you plug it in and you can kind of chase the battery charge and, and, um, get the runtime you need. But then also, yeah, a lot of, uh, one of the most common things you hear from, you know, friends like, Oh, I forgot to charge my lights. Like, well, you got two hours, plug it in. We'll be good to go. Uh, yeah. 
and uh, being able to pick up the light and know, okay, I've got enough battery that I'll be able to get through my hour and a half ride. That's that's also important too. And I think that a lot of lithium ion, not a lot, all lithium ion batteries charge really quickly when they're dead, but they taper off as they get more full. So mm-hmm. you'll see a lot more companies start quoting zero to 85% charge times, um, just like electric vehicles because that last 15% always takes a a while longer. And we want to get to 85% as fast as possible so that we're basically eliminating an excuse for people to not ride at night. The, oh, my my lights aren't charged excuse is kind of lame. And we want people to get out on their bikes more. Definitely. And thank you for putting a USB-C charging port on it. It's like, (laughs) why why everything doesn't just have the same connector? It baffles me. Hopefully we're heading that way eventually but yeah thank you for well, that it makes life the, better the eu is taking a big step in forcing apple to start doing that so i'm i mean i've got an iphone and i like the lightning connector but damn i'm excited to have USB-C <laughs> as a standard because the one thing one thing the bike industry does not have a lot of is standards um because an actual standard means like that's the one thing that people use, not 16 different quote unquote standards, yeah. which makes it nothing compatible. And um, yeah, I don't want people to have to dig around looking for a proprietary charger to charge their light specifically. I want you to be able to just plug into any USB port and go. Yeah, perfect. Good work. Talk about the mounting because that's that's quite different to uh, other lights that I've used in the past and seems really solid and uh and works really well in my opinion but yeah give us some thoughts on that because you've taken a different stance on both the helmet and the bar mount light yeah so well with the helmet we've tried not to take a different stance by using like standard gopro mounts um most helmets are coming with you know the action camera mounts or which is basically just a gopro standard um and so we thought why reinvent the wheel i want it to work with as many existing helmets and mounts that are already out there you can get from third parties and not have to have something proprietary and it works so we just use that um but we also tried to you know part of the reason we have our lights turned sideways so to speak is so that we can kind of tuck the mount up on the back side so it keeps the light lower to the helmet and the gopro mount standard works works really well for that um for the handlebars you know, we're, we're always basically the moment we release a product, we start redesigning it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, the mounts are, are definitely one of those things where we basically took a, a, a camera tripod mount design. Um, you know, it's got a little brass plunger and a little snap in lever cam lever that locks it in place, uh, called the Manfrotto design. And that's, you know, that patent expired 40 years ago. Um, so we basically took that principle and miniaturized it, um, to optimize it for handlebar mounts. So you can have, what we really wanted is have a, a one hand quick release mechanism. So you can grab the light, flip the lever with your finger and pull it out with one hand and not have to fiddle around with um, weird snaps and compression levers and things like that. Um, we also wanted it to be really solid because uh, one thing that drives me absolutely bonkers uh, with, you know, lights that have rubber straps in particular, or even just rubber shims to, you know, better grip the bar. What happens is anything rubber is compressible and it wiggles and moves. And if your light moves a millimeter up and down, the beam pattern on the trail is now shaking and moving and that's distracting. And we, we do not want that. We want a minimum amount of movement. Um, so we, you know, decided to make a bolt on clamp that doesn't have any rubber shims or, or stuff in the way. And then, um, 
the quick release design has a has a cam interface so that it closes as far as it needs to close to hold it tight and then as you know years go by and that interface wears it'll just close further to take up the slack so basically it doesn't develop play over time so you don't Uh, have something wiggly that gets more wiggly and then you have to replace the mount ours should should hold up pretty well over the years good work and you've got this little uh clip feature that kind of mounts on the bottom of the bar like to keep the cables out of the way so you don't get any shadowing in front of the beam which was a nice touch yeah i mean that's that's a problem with a lot of lights but also the where we were mounting ours we wanted it to be front and center right in front of the stem and thought that was a good balanced place it looks better it's all those things um and that's where your cables are so it was kind of born out of necessity i don't like having the, the glare out of the corner of your eye, especially if you don't have black cable housings. A lot of people have, you know, color matched like lime green cable housings or whatever. Um, they're highly reflective and you will see that flopping around. And then depending on the type of light you have, you may get really crisp shadows projected onto the trail of your cables, which are then again, moving around. And so now you have something else moving, distracting you, making it harder to read terrain. So yeah, we just made a clip that holds the cables out of the way. Simple, good work. And then the other, the other uh, thing which I think is kind of interesting and different is the adaptive mode of the lights. So they kind of they start out at their brightest setting, and then they will gradually, naturally dim over time to kind of get as much out of the battery as possible. And I believe that's based on the f- the fact that your eye will adjust over time, so you don't actually notice the light getting dimmer. You're kind of yeah. the lights working with your your brain eye interface, I suppose. Yeah. And, and the term adaptive comes from dark adaptation, not adaptive, like speed sensing or ambient light sensing. It's, it's more that your, your eyes go through dark adaptation, where if you go from a really uh, bright outdoor space to a dark indoor space, um, your eyes take, you know, 20 minutes or so to adjust for your pupils to dilate so that you get your uh, night vision um, is what a lot of people call it. So, when you start a ride, your eyes haven't adjusted to the darkness yet necessarily. And you turn the light on, your eyes starts adjusting. And so you can very gradually dim the light a little bit, not feel it. So it feels like it's the same brightness um, because your pupils are opening up and you get extended runtime from it. And the main reason we put that in there is because we wanted to cover the two most common use cases for riders, the, the pedally cross-country rides where you start a ride and you don't want to mess with anything. You just start pedaling and you don't really stop. You go, go, go the whole time at decent clip. Um, that's where the adaptive makes the most sense. And then for, you know, a lot of casual group li- rides, you might have a slow, long climb and a uh, fast downhill, more enduro style rides. We just have low and high for that. And, and the reason we have a separate high mode from adaptive is a lot of manufacturers basically have, um, a light that starts at max brightness. And then as the battery dies, it starts tapering off. So it's a pseudo adaptive, um, unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means that if your battery, you know, you have an hour long climb, you get to the top and your battery's at 25%. Guess what? You're not getting max output from that. Um, so we wanted to have a dedicated high mode so that even if your battery is almost dead, you turn it to high, you're getting a hundred percent max output because you may have the gnarliest, fastest downhill at the end of your ride. And, uh, you can put it on low to conserve power on the climb where you don't need to see 300 feet in front of you. And then you put it back on high for the downhill and know that you're, 
you're able to see the best. So kind of covers those two primary use cases. Cool. And you've got this like 20 minute, like get home buffer in there as well. So hopefully reduce that kind of range anxiety that people suffer with, certainly with e-bikes and with lights to some extent. Yeah. I mean, once the battery gets to 5%, it trips to low. So you see it change and then um, you've got time. I, I don't know if that's the perfect, you know, maybe we need something that um, before the battery is about to die completely, maybe it just kind of tapers off. So it's not going to zero, but it's a low, very low amount of light. So you're not, you know, having to pull your phone out and use your LED there. Um, that's something we were tweaking and playing with, but at a minimum, we want you to have a warning. And then uh, before the light dies completely, we've got a little pulse, death pulse, so that it says, hey, stop moving or you're going to lose your light and crash. Um, because uh, safety is pretty critical here. If your lights fail in the middle of your ride or if they just die and with no warning, yeah, that's dangerous. We don't want that happening. No, for sure, man. Well, it's been uh, it's been super interesting chatting and finding out more about the world of night riding. Hopefully there's some interesting stuff in there for people and some useful advice. I definitely learned some stuff throughout the conversation. Um, we're going to do a bit of a giveaway, I think. So uh, yeah. I'll put some information in the intro for this episode so people can enter and potentially get themselves, uh, get their hands on a set of outbound lights, which would be awesome. If people want to find out more, if you pique their interest and they want to check out the products, where's the best place for them to head? Uh, just outboundlighting.com. Uh, we've got a, you know, we've got social media and stuff, but honestly, we we don't care that much about social media. <laughs> so we, we put a lot more time into the website to try to convey some of these things like beam pattern with side to side comparisons and, you know, what lumens versus lux and all these terms mean so that you can understand more what you're looking at. So that's our, our website is a good resource for that. Good stuff, Matt. And you must be doing a good job because the, uh, the reviews of the lights seem to be amazing um, and customer service is clearly important to you as well. So, yeah, good work yeah. on that. Thanks. I, I spend a lot of time on that. And thankfully now uh, we yeah, have Lauren on board and she helps a good bit with uh, customer support as well. So it's it's been, we've realized that that's equally important to having a good product is if you don't stand behind it, then people are not going to be very excited about it. So um, that's worked out really well. Sure, man. Good stuff. Well, thanks for your time. It's been really interesting. I hope Outbound continues to grow and uh, do good things. I look forward to seeing where it goes in the future. But yeah, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that's it for this episode with Tom. I really hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to enter the competition to win a set of Outbound's Evo Downhill Lighting Package by following at Outbound Lighting and commenting on my competition post on Instagram from Monday the 31st of October. You can check out the entire range of lights over at outboundlighting.com. A massive thanks to Earshots for supporting this episode. If you want headphones that are the perfect fit for riding, running or training or just for listening to your favourite podcasts, then look no further than Earshots. As a downtime listener, Earshots are giving you 10% off. All you need to do is to enter the code DOWNTIME22 at the checkout over on Earshots.com and the discount will be applied at the final stage of the checkout process. That's downtime, all uppercase, no space, then the number 22 over at Earshots.com. Also, a massive thanks to YT Industries. I've been having a lot of fun on their Capra MX in the Core 4 spec, which is insane value for money in a world where everything is getting much more expensive. What's more, as a downtime listener, you can get an extra £100 or dollars or euros, depending on where you are, off their entire range. 
All you need to do is to select I have a voucher in the bottom left corner at checkout and use the code downtime2008. That's downtime with a capital D, no space, then the number 2008 over at yt-industries.com. The code is valid for a maximum of 200 uses and runs until the 31st of March 2023. All right, here's a few other links that might be useful to you too downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you never miss an episode forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some brand new merch and forward slash ep if you'd like to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project downtime ep as always spread the word tell your riding mates and make sure as many people as possible are listening that's it for today we're going to have another awesome episode coming up really soon but until next time get out and ride